every single episode of Myths and Legends is now on Spotify. Yeah, that same app with millions of songs now has thousands of podcasts. On Spotify, listen to all your favorite shows, ahem, and discover new ones, just not too many. We get jealous. To subscribe to our show, search for Myths and Legends, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts on Spotify, they're streaming right now. And now, and now. This is a pretty strong disclaimer. We're in the Old West, so it's violent again this week. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week, on Myths and Legends, we're finishing up the story of Joaquin Murrieta, famed outlaw. Joaquin will continue to transform himself into a person he never imagined he'd be, all while his influence grows and powerful people look to stop him. The creature this week is a super loud, super clumsy three-legged horse who will be dragging you to the underworld. Unless you brought snacks. This is Myths and Legends, episode 116B, Outlaw Country. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth the listen. Previously in this podcast, Joaquin traveled to the newly minted state of California, only recently taken from Mexico after a war. There, he experienced some truly terrible things, and eventually broke bad, stealing horses and selling them in Mexico. He came up against Captain Love, who executed his close friend outside of the town of Los Angeles. We'll catch up with the story back in Los Angeles, only a couple weeks after Love narrowly made it back. It was a hot one that night, near stifling. Captain Wilson rolled his eyes at the commotion outside and stood slowly from his whiskey. He rubbed his face. All right, time to go break up another fight. He wasn't in Los Angeles to drink, and he wasn't in Los Angeles to play babysitter and break up fights. He had come down from up north for one reason alone, Joaquin Murrieta. That bandit had chased the deputy sheriff into town just a month prior, the same day Captain Wilson had heard reports that the bandit and those closest to him had traveled south. Now, with more horses and people disappearing, it was obvious that he had never left. Captain Harry Love, the deputy sheriff of Los Angeles, was happy for the help, and Captain Wilson joined the investigation. He had just found a room at a local inn, and sat down to a nice Wild West snack of whiskey with a side of whiskey when he heard the dull slap of fists hitting flesh outside. He burst from the saloon and stepped in front of two Native American men fighting in the street. They kicked and shouted, but neither of them could get past Captain Wilson's bulk. Sneering, the men yelled at each other in a language Wilson didn't understand before parting ways. Wilson turned to the crowd. There was nothing to see here. He took out his handkerchief and mopped the sweat from his brow. Wilson? Captain Wilson? Wilson heard from the street. He turned to see a man sitting on his horse. He was well-dressed and anxious. Are you Captain Wilson, the one looking for Joaquin Marietta? The man asked, eyes darting nervously down the street. Wilson nodded. Yes, did this guy have any information? The man nodded, his fear clearly washing away. He smiled. I am Joaquin. Despite the crowded street, Despite every eye turned in his direction after the fight, everyone, everyone, would later claim that they hadn't seen the face of the man on the horse. The identity of the guy who, without hesitation, whipped out his pistol, sending a round right through Captain Wilson's head. Joaquin whistled, and Valenzuela led two horses out of a nearby alley, 
the two men who had been fighting appeared in the crowd and climbed atop them. A few minutes later, they were out of the city, leaving only the body of Captain Wilson in their wake. Joaquin eyed the men, while three-fingered Jack counted out their money. Los Angeles had become too hot for them following the death of Captain Wilson, so he and Jack rode north to meet up with their gang. On the way, Jack saw two railroad workers asleep by the rails. Joaquin knew better than to object. Three-fingered Jack was an unstoppable force for cruelty. If he told Jack not to rob men, it would put him at odds with his best man. With so many of his friends falling to the lawmen, he needed Jack on his side. And so, Joaquin followed. Upon waking, the men cried and handed over their money. Thirty dollars total. Jack sneered. Thirty dollars? What were they even working themselves to death for if all they came away with was thirty dollars? Jack put away his gun. They weren't even worth the bullets. So, he took out his knife. And he cut their throats. Joaquin sighed and looked away. It reminded him of Alan Ruddle. It was wrong. He couldn't say as much, or Jack might turn on him too, and Joaquin had a lot more than $30. Together, Joaquin and Jack rode to their hideout, near San Gabriel, only to find it packed. Claudio, the leader of the band, found his leader, and hugged Joaquin. He announced that they were pinned down. There was a man in the area, a general bean who'd been sent by the government. That's why they were laying low in the woods. They had spies on him all the time, but the rancheros and the lawmen were getting smarter. It was harder to infiltrate their operations. They had one spy left on Bean, but Bean had killed so many of them that when the time came, no one wanted to be the one who did it. Joaquin looked at Three-Fingered Jack, who nodded. He pursed his lips. Okay. When was their next opportunity? Spy came riding to the hideout later that evening. Bean was coming back from the store in town. They had five minutes to get as many men on the road and... Wait, why was Claudio just sending two guys? Before anyone could answer, Joaquin and Jack took off into the forest. And, in three minutes, they were crouching behind a rock beside the road. General Bean's horse trotted up the road, saddlebags bouncing at his side. It all happened at once. Joaquin stepped out from behind the rock and grabbed the bridle, stopping the horse. There was no surprise in Bean's face, no hesitation. His hand went to his holster and pulled out his gun, pulling back on the hammer and pointing it at Joaquin's head all at once. When the gun went off, it was just six inches above Joaquin's hat. Too close. But Jack had done his job. He had grabbed Bean from behind and yanked him from his saddle. Joaquin stood stunned, his ears ringing as he watched the massive General Bean slam into the ground. But then he got up, with Three-Finger Jack on top of him. Still not showing any alarm whatsoever, Bean's hand went to the knife at his side. It was at that moment that Jack found his footing and pulled out his own bowie knife, stabbing his antagonist twice in the chest. But Claudio's men were right not to want to come on this job. As Jack sat panting, thinking that it was over, Bean looked at the stab wounds and bent to pick up his knife again. Jack staggered back, pulled out his gun, and shot the man, 
once in the chest and twice more in the head did it. Joaquin waited while Jack kicked the corpse after he was done. Their problems with General Bean were through. That summer was a good one for Joaquin and his gang. Every lawman, save Captain Love, who boldly declared that Joaquin Murrieta was an enemy that would be brought to justice, had been killed. The short careers of the people who were trying to stop him dissuaded others from taking up the job, so Joaquin and his band rode unencumbered. Most of the time, Joaquin rode ahead of his men. Being constantly surrounded by them, he enjoyed some time alone. Maybe it helped him separate himself from the criminals. Maybe it made him feel like he wasn't one of them. One evening, as the horse trotted along, he passed a merchant on the road and tipped his hat. The man did the same, but after he passed, Joaquin heard the man's horse stop. Joaquin? Joaquin's hand went to his gun. No one outside of his wife, his mistresses, and his gang members knew his face and lived. He turned to kill the man and found himself looking into the face of Joe Lake, his old friend, his first friend from his prior mining days. Joe, with a wide smile, sat across the table from Joaquin. Joe had practically jumped for joy out of his saddle at the sight of Joaquin. He hadn't seen the man since after the attack, after Joaquin rode north to deal Monty. Joaquin looked at Joe's house. His old friend was now a mine owner, living Joaquin's dream. Joe's child burst into the room, and Joaquin found himself wiping a tear from his eye. Joe stopped and faced his old friend. What was wrong? For a moment, Joaquin probably felt like himself again. It had been years. So many things had changed. He had done so many terrible things. He was happy for his friend. Joe smiled and asked what he had been doing since he left. Joaquin confided in his friend. He was a scoundrel, a murderer, a bandit. Joe stiffened in his seat. Joaquin continued, saying that he had been driven to it. Joe saw what they had done to his wife, and then they killed his brother. His smile fading, Joe told his son to go to his mom in the other room. Joaquin said Joe was the first American he had talked to as a friend in two years, and Joe was his friend. He didn't ask for Joe to love or respect him. Joe was a kind, honest man. Joaquin knew he didn't deserve that respect now. All he asked was that Joe not betray him. Joe was one of the few men who knew his face, something that he'd hidden from everyone except the very trusted or the very dead. Joaquin could see that Joe was growing uncomfortable. Afraid, too. That was Joaquin's doing. This was his old life, and he could never go back. The man who had once been his only friend could now barely sit across the table from him. A long silence followed before Joaquin leaned forward. Elbows perched on the edge of the table. He told Joe that he still saw the man as a friend. It looked like he had a good life here. A nice family. The last thing in the world he wanted was for anything to happen to Joe. But if Joe betrayed him, Joaquin would kill him. Joe trembled. He stammered. Of course he wouldn't. He, he wouldn't tell anyone. Joaquin was safe. He, he was an old friend. Joaquin nodded. Good. Good. 
he rose from the table, nodded to his friend, and left the house. It was the next day that Joaquin got the word. One of their men in town, one who worked near the jail, had overheard a man who said he knew the face of Joaquin Murrieta. The spy had left as soon as he heard those words, but the man was still at the jail. Joaquin turned down the offers of several men to prove themselves. No. This was one he had to do himself. He found Joe leaving the jail. Joe, visibly distraught, stepped into the sunlight, and then into the shadow of Joaquin's horse. Joe, Joaquin uttered. The sun at his back. No one could see the tears in Joaquin's eyes as he raised his pistol and fired. He rode from town with a cacophony of gunfire at his back, but it was done. His oldest friend, his only friend, Joe Lake, was dead. After Joe, something changed in Joaquin. He became angrier, more violent. The horse stealing continued, but so did robbing people on the street. In his mind, California was Mexico. It had only been three years ago that it had been taken in a war, and yet he and everyone else who used to make it their home were being pushed out. His wife had been raped, and he had been beaten because he refused to leave. His brother had been lynched. Where was justice? They only wanted him and those like him to leave, to get out of the home that had belonged to his people since before their country even existed. But they wouldn't. Joaquin and his men had them on the run. General Bean and Captain Wilson were dead. Sheriffs from San Francisco to San Diego were either in his pocket, or feared him, or both. People had tried to come after him, to betray him. Someone from Sonora, his home, caught wind of the movement of his horses and tried to inform the Americans on him. But the Americans only had one spy. He had hundreds. And if they didn't get the information he needed, well, everyone had a price. And so Joaquin watched as the horses flooded into the valley. He knew the team was under close watch by a posse of 50 Americans. One eager cowboy, riding ahead of the posse, galloped into the canyon. There, he stopped cold. Where had the horses gone? He could no longer see them. That he had a bad feeling about this was all he managed to say before enough bullets rained down on him from either side that his hat alone ceased to exist. That battle was a bloody one. Of the 50 Americans and Joaquin's 45 bandits, both sides lost 20 men. Claudio, one of his most trusted men, and someone who had been with Joaquin from the very beginning, also fell to the gunfire. Stalemate though it was, it was ultimately a victory for Joaquin. He kept the horses, and anyone who wanted to put a posse together to stop him in the future first had to overcome the potential to lose 20 of their friends. People decided it was easier just to ignore it all, to pay up when Joaquin, Jack, or the others came by, to continue living their lives. Over time, Joaquin became more and more bold. He would ride into town, dressed like a rich man, and stopped to look at the wanted posters. One time, he saw his own, with a sketch that had been provided by Joe Lake a few months back. Joaquin leapt down from the horse and inspected it. It offered a reward of $5,000 for Joaquin Murrieta. 
dead or alive. Joaquin asked a nearby store owner if he could borrow a pencil. When he was finished, he climbed back atop his horse and left town. It was with a gasp that the townspeople read, I will give 10,000. Joaquin. All throughout town, it was all anyone talked about for weeks. Two thousand men. Joaquin sat with his closest men, of Reyes, Three Finger Jack, Gonzalez, Claudio, and Valenzuela. Only Three Finger Jack and Valenzuela were still alive from the old days. His numbers had swelled to two thousand bandits, but his friends, those closest to him, had dwindled to two. Even Three Finger Jack could barely be considered a friend. In the battle with the posse a couple weeks back, he had been so consumed with bloodlust that he had nearly attacked Joaquin. Joaquin wanted to be done. He was tired of watching his friends die, and he had enough to live on for several lifetimes. He could escape to the mountains of his homeland, like he always had told his wife they would, and live like a king. In the early days, he had the notion that he could take the land that the Americans had stolen back. It would be his home again, where his people could live in safety, defended by him. He knew now that it was impossible the U.S. only grew in power, and no matter how many people he killed, they would just send more. California belonged to the U.S. now, and Joaquin feared it always would. So he would give it a parting gift. Total war. Ranches would burn. Cities would tremble. 2,000 men would sweep across the land in mass, taking everything and killing anyone who tried to stop them. He would revenge the wrongs done against his country on the colonists that had come to settle and force them out. And then, he would be forever celebrated as a hero. It would start in the spring. For now, he needed horses and cash. He sent Three Finger Jack and Valenzuela to Sonora. They were to drive 1,000 horses he had reserved up north. He sent another man, named Luis Volvia, with them. He was to travel separately, with $50,000, enough to fund Joaquin's final assault. Weeks later, Jack and Valenzuela arrived with 1,000 horses as did news that Luis had been arrested. Luis sat sweating in the courtroom. San Jose was comparatively cool in August, but Luis had a lot to worry about. Traveling back, he'd come across a miner, all alone in the open. Luis knew he had too much in cash on him to take on a side job, that it was too risky, but the man was sleeping. He just couldn't resist. He stashed Joaquin's money and crept over to the mine. Unfortunately, the man had resisted. He woke up when Luis was mere steps away and screamed, Murder! In a panic, Luis stabbed the man until he was silent. But he had no idea that the rest of the mine was so close. He ran without even taking the man's cash. They soon caught up to him in the forest. The judge was ruthless. Luis didn't talk. He'd never talk, but they quickly connected him with Joaquin's band. He would hang. Just then, the door to the courtroom flew open, and a man named Mr. Samuel Harrington strode in. The judge barked that the man was interrupting a trial. Harrington replied that he was aware, and continued approaching. That was the point. The man sitting there, he was innocent. The judge cocked his head. Well, that's what they were trying to figure out. That was the point of a trial. Harrington slammed a file down on the table, 
he had heard his man had been picked up for some ridiculous charges, that he was part of Joaquin Murrieta's gang. The judge said that he was on trial for the murder of a minor. He had been found at the scene of a crime. Harrington laughed. Had he now? And this was based on what? The minor's friends? Did the judge have any testimony other than them? For once, the judge didn't respond. Harrington continued. He said he had sent Mr. Volvia on an errand in the area, only to learn that he had been just so lawfully captured. Mr. Harrington pointed to Luis's broken arm for a crime that he didn't commit. Luis was sitting here not because he murdered a minor, but because he happened to be the first man the minor saw. Harrington paused for effect. The first Mexican man. Harrington turned back to the judge, saying that he, Harrington, had lived in this region since before it was America. The judge had no idea what it was like for them now. The judge sat and thought, considering the case, as Harrington offered him the file. The judge leafed through it. Identification from Mr. Harrington, employment papers from Mr. Volvia, pay stubs, receipts, train tickets, everything. With this mountain of evidence, and with Mr. Harrington having cast doubt on the minor's testimony, the trial quickly became a short one. Luis Volvia was acquitted. When Luis left the courtroom, he asked his boss, Mr. Samuel Harrington, how he managed to make such a convincing fake identity in a matter of weeks. Joaquin laughed. Two days later, when Luis was safely in Mexico, Joaquin was finally in possession of the $50,000, the real Mr. Samuel Harrington's body was found, long dead, in his home outside of San Jose. By now, Joaquin's plan to take revenge for Mexico's treatment in the war was in full swing. Stories of fires, murders, and theft spread far and wide. It was a time of chaos. Even still, there were lines Joaquin refused to cross. The story says one of his men kidnapped a woman from her home, right in front of her own mother and her boyfriend. Joaquin had found her, bound and gagged on a horseback at camp. In a rage, Joaquin had found the offender, and he, the butt of his pistol, and a few sharp kicks to the ribs, quickly convinced the man to return the woman safely. Still, the chaos continued. Lawmen came and went, but Joaquin prevailed. Captain Charles Ellis of San Andreas came after Joaquin, and one time actually stood mere feet away from the bandit leader, unable to recognize the very man he pursued. He chased Joaquin everywhere, following the trail of robberies and bodies, before losing the bandit altogether. The situation grew so bad that the town of Jackson, California called together an assembly that everyone in town should turn out in pursuit of Joaquin and his gang, since they had been pillaging the countryside nearby. Many, many arrests were made of people of Mexican descent. So many, in fact, that judges were appointed in the woods to give some semblance of a fair trial. People were arraigned, tried, and executed in a matter of minutes. Tragically, there was no way everyone executed could have been part of Joaquin's gang. But, seeing as the people gave the accused a quick death if they confessed to their crime of riding with Joaquin, there were many confessions made out of fear. Joaquin, however, lived a charmed life. He rode before his men and killed, robbed, and burned anyone who stood in his way. People began to talk of him as something more than a man. 
suggesting that you needed a silver bullet to kill Joaquin Murrieta. In time, this rumor grew, seemingly confirmed by a late-night incident. A few bold men crouched behind some bushes one evening, having found Joaquin's cabin. Inside slept Joaquin, Valenzuela, and Three-Fingered Jack. The men charged the cabin, and in their ambush, Joaquin allegedly took a double-barreled shotgun blast to the chest, surviving long enough to see his friends kill the attackers. He earned Three-Fingered Jack's undying respect after that, and for weeks, the man marveled that Joaquin was still alive. Captain Love might have been called a coward. His friends and colleagues were out fighting and dying against Joaquin Murrieta and his band. But Love was safely tucked away in Los Angeles. He had left Joaquin alone, and Joaquin had steered clear of the city after he killed Captain Wilson. Love didn't go after Joaquin, but that didn't mean he wasn't hard at work. He had heard stories of people rousing posses to go after Joaquin, and he had also heard stories of those same people having to bury their friends. Numbers weren't going to get rid of Joaquin, and Love knew it. The bandits were too well-armed. Instead, Love needed to be the best, and he needed men with experience, those who had been hardened by the frontier. To get the best, however, you had to pay for the best. That's why he traveled to the state legislature in Viejo. The whole state was under siege, and Love was well-known as the guy who took out Gonzalez and kept Joaquin out of Los Angeles. And now he had his commission from the California State Legislature. He could pay 20 guys up to $150 apiece, and he would be funded for three months. He had already picked his team, and, bill in hand, he rode south. Later that month, Love and his men crouched in the field. They had been following word of Joaquin. Total war being total war, it wasn't exactly quiet. He knew Joaquin's sweep of California was almost finished, and if he wanted to catch Murrieta, it needed to be before the man fled back to Mexico. Love learned of reinforcements coming in from Sonora, and so he and about eight of his own men were waiting. Sure enough, a team driving 1,500 horses thundered past. Love waited for them to go, mounted his own horse, and galloped in hot pursuit. He saw Three-Fingered Jack first. Any lawman in California would know that face, and the fingers, or lack thereof. If he was here, Joaquin couldn't be too far behind. Then, Love heard it. Jack yelled out to the group, addressing Joaquin, saying that he was going to run into town, and that he'd be back. Love gripped his rifle and smiled. Joaquin was here, and in a team of just seven. After Jack left, there will be only six. Joaquin will be outnumbered. Love would have the jump on him. Love watched Jack gallop away, and he didn't waste time. He wouldn't have a better shot than this, literally and figuratively. He gave his men the signal, and they crept silently toward the tents. It was as he sat by the fire that Joaquin felt the gun on the back of his head. Immediately, he and a few others stood, hands in the air, as Love stepped out into the dancing light of the fire. He had Joaquin dead to rights. It was over. It was finally over. That was when he heard the shots. 
Maybe Three Finger Jack had forgotten something. Or maybe he just had the feeling that something was wrong back at camp. Either way, he had turned around, and now he was galloping back to the camp, guns blazing. Love's men had no choice, and so they fired back. Joaquin and his men took the opportunity and took off toward their horses as soon as Love's men turned away. Love stood, head whipping left and right as the standoff went down. Three-finger Jack took a bullet to the chest, and then another to the head. He looked back to Joaquin and his men taking off in the night. He squinted and located Joaquin's horse in the night. The man next to him shouted, They had to go! They had to chase after Joaquin! But Love shook his head and steadied his rifle. Not yet. It was an impossible shot, and for years, people would marvel that it even happened. Love hit the horse underneath the fugitive, and the rider tumbled to the ground. Love lowered his rifle. Now, they could chase. In the darkness, they found the rider crawling in the dirt. His leg was broken, but still, he tried to escape. It's nice to meet you, Joaquin, Love said, jumping down hard from his horse. Joaquin grimaced from the darkness. Love fired, and the man died. One sunny afternoon, a young woman walked up. No one knew her, and she remained silent. She was Sonoran, and though she had lived in California for four years, she had spent most of the last two years tucked away at Mount Shasta, while more and more people left her camp and didn't return. She paid her dollar and waited in line. Captain Love was cashing in on his investment. After he shot Joaquin, he took his head and he put it in a jar of alcohol, preserving it. Love was still a famous sheriff, but now he made a fortune by putting the head of Joaquin Murrieta on display. Seeing as it was 1853 and entertainment options were limited, viewing the head of the bandit that had terrorized the area made for a nice little Sunday afternoon activity. When it was her turn, the woman stepped forward and looked at the head in the jar, and she smiled. The men on either side of her couldn't believe her chuckling at this macabre sight, but she didn't stay long enough for them to say anything. She ducked past the long line of people waiting to get a look at the head of the feared bandit, and she left. Outside, a man rode up, asking her if she'd seen him. She nodded. He looked different than she remembered. The rider smiled. He hoped they got the right guy. No one really knew Joaquin's face, after all. Not even love. The woman smiled again. She climbed atop the horse, and together they rode south at last. For home. ostensibly states that it was, in fact, Joaquin's head in the jar. But history is far less conclusive. There were allegations that Love and his rangers murdered innocent Mexicans out catching Mustangs, and then bribed 17 people to sign an affidavit, swearing that it was actually Joaquin's head. There was a lot of profit in it for Love. Not only did he get his $1,000 for successfully killing Joaquin, but the California legislature voted to give him and his rangers an additional $5,000 a year after the fact. 25 years later, 
Murrieta's own sister, who traveled north to see the head of her brother, insisted that the preserved head wasn't his. And around that time, there were numerous unconfirmed sightings of him in Mexico as an old man, finally out of hiding. The head was destroyed during the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and subsequent fire that destroyed over 80% of the city. This is a complex story, and I didn't really shy away from presenting the time as it was. It was like Game of Thrones level morally gray. On one hand, Joaquin and the people of Mexican descent experienced some truly heinous things. The systemic racism that not only victimized them, but protected their aggressors was inexcusable. Joaquin's eventual response to that racism, however, was also heinous. It was like Breaking Bad, where somewhere along the line you stop rooting for the character, and you kind of have to look back at all of his actions and determine where he went so wrong that there was no way back. That's it for this week. Instead of other stuff, I just want to remind everyone that our other show, Fictional, where we do basically this, but with stories from classic literature, is back for season three. This week, it's the very famous Sherlock Holmes story, a scandal in Bohemia, where there's a scandal. In Bohemia. And Sherlock meets someone who he will remember forever. Oh, and there's the newly married Watson, well on his way to a dad bod. You can go to fictional.fm to find the show. creature this time is Hellhest, from Danish folklore. Hellhest is a combination of Hell, H-E-L from the Norse goddess, not the Christian afterlife, and Hest, which is Danish for horse. It's the Hell Horse. It's the steed that Hell rides. If you remember, she's Loki's daughter, who rules the world of the same name, the one with the dishonored dead in Norse mythology. Hell, it seems, has all the time in the world. Death comes for everyone, eventually. And that's pretty obvious, because the horse only has three legs, and isn't especially great at using them. It's super loud, you can hear it coming a long way off, but the scary thing is that you can't really do anything about it. When you see the hell horse, that's it, you're dead. Thanks for playing. Even after Christianity largely replaced the old Viking religions, the legend of the hell horse continued. According to legend, one man was sitting with his sick and dying friend. The man gestured to the window and, resigned to his fate, said that the hell horse was there and he was waiting to take him to the underworld. The friend sat up and said, Hey, monstrous ghost horse that takes people to the land of the dead? <laughs> Give me a look. And yeah, don't do this. Because while he didn't see the horse at first, soon he sat transfixed at the window, growing more and more pale. Days later, set upon by a sudden illness, he quickly followed his friend to the grave. Alternate origins for the hell horse were from the Middle Ages. When a graveyard was being consecrated, it was apparently considered bad luck to be the first one buried in it. Though, I don't know how much worse your luck can get if you're the one being buried. According to legend, they would bury a horse first. And the hell horse is just that horse having risen from the ground each night. Just looking for some friends to join him. Believe it or not, there is a way out. Even though they're horses, they are apparently susceptible to bribes. It is a very good idea to travel around with a bag of oats on hand. Because if the time comes when the hell horse rides awkwardly for you on his three legs, and you happen to have a nice little treat for him, well... It's your lucky day, because the hell horse is more than happy to stop for a snack. That is the source of the apparent Danish phrase, he gave death a pack of oats, for someone who survives a disease when no one thought they would. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and today's episode was written by me, 
Jason Weiser, and edited and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.